Welcome back. This is part two on a two-part series. For those of you who didn't listen to part one, you're going to have to go back and do that before this one makes any sense. Part one, by the way, had Grant Johnson from Horizons Unlimited, the ergonomics program that he runs at his Horizons Unlimited events. And uh, he walks through that with us. And then we started to listen to Sam Manicom, which you definitely want to hear that first part. And this is the second part of Sam. And there's a whole bunch in here. He talks about his bikes, his choice of equipment, things that happen to him on the road, a whole bunch of fun stuff. So stick around. And this is Adventure Rider Radio. My name is Jim Martin. Stay with us. This is Grant Johnson from HorizonsUnlimited.com, and you're on Adventure Rider Radio. We're going to take you right back into where we left off with Sam Manicom and me talking about, well, listen in. Let me take you back to the beginning. And what set this idea in motion and ultimately the whole plan and the, and the trip itself? What was it in your life that suddenly drove you, a person who didn't ride a motorcycle until then, uh, to say, oh, yeah, I'm going to get on a motorcycle and uh, travel the world? <laughs> Do you know, I suspect there are one or two people who listen to this who will be thinking to themselves, oh, I recognize what he's talking about. Um <laughs> There are times when you reach a moment in life when you suddenly realize, or this is what happened to me anyway, where I suddenly realized that actually the path that I was um, living my life along wasn't taking me to somewhere that I wanted to be going to. I wasn't enjoying what I was doing anymore. It wasn't satisfying. And I was thinking, well, actually, if I stay doing this job, then I'm going to be living in a sort of limbo wasteland and what a waste that would be. So once I'd realized that actually I wasn't enjoying my job anymore, I, I decided, well, hang on a minute, you've, you've got to do some th serious thinking on this. So I went to the pub and I bought myself a beer and tucked myself away in a corner. And I was just sort of sitting back in the chair and thinking about life and analyzing why I didn't like the job that I was doing and what the alternatives might be. Well, of course, one alternative would be to have a career change and learn how to do something else and so on. But during the second pint, I realized that actually I was in a fairly unique position. I didn't owe anybody any money. My family were well, and I got no children and no pets. And if I sold everything that I'd got, I could do something completely different. And if I couldn't stay with the job that I was in, well, actually, when was there ever going to be a better time to do something completely different? Now, as I mentioned, I traveled a bit before. My first trip was when I was 16 years old. I'd uh, saved up my pocket money, uh, pocket money by doing a, a newspaper round and by doing chores and that sort of thing. And I'd bought myself a bicycle. It's just a three-speed bicycle. But this thing gleamed and I just itched to do something with it. And one day during the school holidays, I thought, actually, do you know, there's no reason why you can't do something with it. So I borrowed a page out of my school atlas and um, I set off on my bicycle and I rode from southern England to Amsterdam in Holland. I got lost quite a lot because um, the scale on the map wasn't exactly appropriate for doing that. But I made it. 
And when I was sitting on a camping site outside Amsterdam and I was thinking about the journey, I was thinking, blimey, you know, I wasn't supposed to be able to do that. And I have. And it's been great. What a magic thing to do. And over the years, I'd subsequently done other trips. I'd backpacked and I'd bus and trained and I'd hiked and done a bit of sailing and things like that. And over the third pint, I was thinking about the things that I liked about those different ways of travel and the things that I didn't. Well, for example, with bicycling, you spend um, 12 days riding into a headwind and it, you get pretty jaded by it. And it's lovely riding a bicycle, and I still ride a bicycle now, but do, did I want to do another trip on a bicycle? No, I didn't. I wanted something new, something that didn't have me riding into headwinds. Sailing. I really like people, but of course, when you're out on the ocean, you don't meet very many people. Uh, busing and training. How easy is it to go hammering on past things that you see out of the window that look really interesting, but you can't get off to go and look? So just sort of filtering my way through all of the different options, I started thinking, well, actually, maybe a motorcycle is the way to do um, the next trip. What advantages could a motorcycle give me? Well, yeah, it's going to give me the opportunity to stop where I want to, to explore when I want to. Um, it's something completely new to learn about. Um, for, of course, I didn't ride a bike, so I had to learn how to do that. I didn't have any friends who were motorcyclists, so there were no brains that I could pick. The information that I could glean from magazines, well, it was interesting, but I was never too sure how much of it was based in reality. And so it was, it was a case of, well, yeah, a bike, that could be a really interesting way to go about doing this. And by the time I'd finished the third pint, I thought, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. So I went into work the next morning and handed my notice in. Um, at lunchtime, I bought a, a little 125 trail bike. And, and six weeks later, I passed my bike test. Um, talking to the two guys in the pub and my mates, straight away bought the an R80GS. And then six weeks later, I was sitting at the edge of the Sahara. And so it really was bang, 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 bang uh, that happened just like that. Till now, I had no idea why pubs were so important in the UK, and now <laughs> I get it. I understand three pints in a pub in an evening, and you've sorted out your life just like that. That's incredible. Uh, do you know, it, beer's a great grey cell um, exerciser, isn't it? <laughs> well, I think it's more for you guys in the UK than it is for us in Canada. Not that Canadians don't drink beer, but... Sam, what effect on the psyche, if any, do you think that one would expect on an extended motorcycle journey? Hmm. You can either become a very positive person or a very negative person, depending on the things that happen to you and how you deal with them. I've met people who've come back from journeys and they've just had one disaster after another and they say, that's it, never again. Yet I meet far more people who go out and have magnificent journeys and they come back and they have just lived a dream. And some of them, they settle back into, into life. And Mike and Sally, who I mentioned earlier we, uh, with us traveling together, um, Sally wasn't a motorcyclist. Uh, but Mike had this dream to ride around the world. And so the deal between them was um, Sally wanted children. So the deal with Mike was, yeah, okay, we'll ride around the world on a motorcycle. But when we come back, we're going to have babies. And uh, Mike signed up to that. And um, before too long, they had a couple of sons. Mike had given up motorcycling so he could spend all of his time playing football with the kids. And um, 
they've just had um, a magnificent life ever since. Uh, well, as magnificent as life is ever going to be. Yet, I'm, I also know people who just can't can't wait to get back out on the road again because they've had such an interesting time. They've become addicts. And um, they also realize, you know, in part, you don't need an awful lot of things. Everything you need to survive in life, you can fit on the back of a motorcycle. And uh, so they come back, they save money, and they head off again. So it can actually be quite dangerous to the psyche. Can you tell us the difference between what your life was about before and what it's like now? Gosh, well, I mean, that's a, not such a straightforward question to answer because for me, because I've I've basically travelled fairly lengthy trips since I was 16 years old, you know, with, with chunks of work in between. So I guess I was bastardised from an early age. Um, life before I went travelling on this last trip, it was corporate, it was chasing the promotion trail, it was um, focused on earning enough money to have a nice house and to have a sports car, both of which I did. Um, great holidays overseas, normally adventure-type holidays, but sometimes, you know, a villa and a pretty part of the world and sunbathing and reading books. Um, back from the trip, inevitably our holidays, our breaks tend to be motorcycle journeys because we've become addicts too. And yeah, no, it's, it's, and, and we don't have a huge number of possessions because we know we don't need them. Um, and it does very much change your way of looking at life and the things that you actually really do need to have. I was talking to a friend a couple of days back and he said to me, do you know, I've got a four bedroom house. It's occurred to me that it's nine months since any bedroom in my house has been used except for our bedroom. I live in this huge house, which is wonderful to have, but we use three rooms and one of those is the bathroom. And he made me think very, very hard about, again, what you do need in life. So I suppose it's, it's made me, traveling has made me satisfied with a lot less material things. And because I'm not spending money on the material things, it gives me the opportunities to spend my money going out and having adventures, learning new stuff. For uh, talking about prep work, um, can you give us an idea of the topics that someone should consider when they're planning a long-distance trip? Okay. Uh, from a motorcycle point of view, let's talk about motorcycles to begin with. I'm often asked this question, and I don't think there is a particular manufacturer of bike that is the right bike to go traveling on. My answer to, the, to the, what motorcycle is... Do you own a motorcycle? Well, inevitably, yes, I do. Do you like riding it? Yes, I do. Is it in good condition? Yes, it is. Then why don't you go traveling on that bike? People travel on all sorts of different types of motorcycle, and you just tailor your trip according to what type of bike you've got. And there is no reason to say why you can't go anywhere on just about any type of motorcycle. There are a couple of Australians, I don't know whether you've come across um, Peter and Kay Forward, um, but they've ridden to every country in the world on a Harley-Davidson. And what a magnificent trip. And I've seen photographs of where they've taken um, this Harley and really gnarly stuff that um, even lightweight 350 trail bikes would have had a hard time on. And these guys have taken their Harley there. And of course, you've got everybody who sets out on, um, you know, Honda C90s and 125s and all of those sorts of things. I think 
you tailor your trip according to what your bike will allow you to do and what you want out of your journey. There is no proper bike. Um, you know, if I was going to ride the length of Africa again, for example, would I take Libby? Um, my bike's called Libby, by the way, because that's short for liberty, because that's what she gives me. Um, would I take her again? Well, you know, she's got 275,000 miles on the clock now, and why not? If I was just going to ride Africa, then I would be looking at the type of road conditions that I wanted to specialize in. Would I want to do as much off-roading as I possibly could? Then I may well choose a lighter weight bike uh, to do it on. If I was going to do the usual mix of pothole asphalt and gravel and um, a little bit of sand and a little bit of mud and all those sort of things, then yeah, actually I probably would. Uh, she's a great bike. Out of the, the whole eight years, I, rest, I guess about 5% of the time, she wasn't a good bike to be riding. But the rest of the time, she was either perfectly adequate, okay, or brilliant. And that's a fine percentage for me. So first of all, choose your bike. Um, the next thing is learn a little bit about the cultures of the countries that you're going to. A little bit of understanding about the places where you're going will help you to learn an awful lot more from the people. It's very easy to offend people in some countries. Like, for example, in Vietnam, you never touch somebody on the shoulder because that's a real insult. In Thailand, you never show the bottom of your foot because that's a real insult. So you learn about things like that. There are some countries where sticking your thumb up as if you were hitchhiking. That's uh, one of the worst insults that you could possibly give. So learn those sorts of things about a culture, learn a little bit about the history of the places, because then when you're visiting a temple and so on, then you've got a grasp on it, which will mean that you're not just seeing, you're understanding a little bit, you're feeling um, a, a little bit. So yeah, learn something about the cultures. One of the key things is learn about the weather patterns of the places that you're going to. There is, for my mind, nothing worse than hitting sub-Saharan Africa when the main rainy season starts. Gravel roads can turn into just complete quagmires and every day is a hot, sweaty battle. And why would you want to do that if there are other months of the year when you could be there and it's relatively cool and the roads are dry and the, the land is um, freshly watered from the last rain so everything's lush and green? You know, that's the difference that checking out the weather patterns can make. Visas, they're really good things to do your research on. And what I mean by that is that some of them start the moment they're issued to you by the embassy. And I know people have been caught out by that. You know, they think, oh, well, I'll drive to X land and I'll get there and I've got three months. But actually what they haven't realized is the two months that they've been riding to get to X land, their visas already been ticking. So all of a sudden they've only got a month there and it's not long enough for anything like long enough for what they want to do. Some visas, of course, start the day that you go across into the country. And there are all sorts of other visas, visa opportunities. I'm, I'm a great believer in um, working as you go. Getting work permits in some countries is incredibly, incredibly difficult, but getting work permits in, permits in other countries, depending on your age, is a lot easier. For example, for many nationalities, working in Australia, if you're under a certain age, I think it's under 30, uh, it's a relatively straightforward process to get a work permit. And of course, as soon as you can work in a country, you're learning so much more about it because you're normally working alongside people, nationals. And 
sometimes working for a couple of weeks here and a couple of weeks there, that's such a really healthy thing to do because you can get on intake overload when you're traveling and you can come a little bit jaded. So you end up thinking about getting to the end of the day instead of everything to do with the journey between where you started that day and where you ended up. So visas are well worth doing some research on, but also things like inoculations getting those right are, are really important too. There is no real reason why you should be getting majorly ill in a lot of the countries so long as you've had the right inoculations and so long as you're sensible while you're traveling. And by sensible, I mean, well, if you're going to eat in a local um, restaurant, then look and see if there are lots of locals eating there, then the chances are it's a fine place to be eating. Uh, they know which places give you a stomach upset and which places don't. So, yeah, for me, those are the, the key things. What was it like finding camping places in the, in the various parts of the world? I know you camped a fair bit, right? Mm. I like camping. I like bush camping as much as I possibly can, in part because, of course, it saves you money, in part because a lot of the places that you can bush camp, you can wake up and there's nobody else around. And it's like you've got that moment in the world all to yourself. And there's nothing finer, for example, than in the Australian outback, waking up and you're just seeing the whole day come alive around you with all the magnificent oh, yeah. colors and you've got no other sounds and no, nothing else human around you to get in the way. And so bush camping, that's a magnificent thing. Um, with t a tip with uh, wild camping is that actually camping wild doesn't necessarily always work. It's well worth remembering that just about everywhere is somebody's backyard. It's amazing where somebody will pop up. You know, I've camped in places where I thought that, you know, I've been 50 miles from anywhere and I'm, I'm tucked away in some bushes and I've woken up to the sound of a couple of voices outside my tent and there are a couple of local guys standing there looking at my tent as if to say, hmm, wonder what that's doing there. I've never been afraid when that's happened because I've undone the zip and normally I've learned to say hello, how are you and that sort of thing in the language of the country that I'm in. It's very easy to learn those things. And being able to do that with somebody who's standing outside your, your tent in the morning, well, all of a sudden you've got a new experience happening. But one of the, the tips with wild camping, especially in places like Africa or in South America too, it works, is uh, when you get to a, a, a village, go and find the headman. Ask for permission to camp on the outside of the village because once they've agreed to that, you're under their protection and the chance of anything happening to you are almost nil. Of course, the only price that you pay is that you then have an audience for absolutely everything that you do. And I mean everything. Um, but that's actually quite good fun. Uh, one morning I woke up and um, I could hear voices, children's voices outside my tent. And I pulled the zip up and there were 20 kids all lying on the floor in front of the, the front of my tent, heads on elbows, waiting for me to wake up and come out of my tent because they all wanted to see what I was going to do. And these kids were great. They were just absolutely fascinating um, and fascinated by me and what I was up to. It was a good way of sharing the fun. Um, but yeah, so, so bush camping and, and so on, that's, that's quite a good thing to do. But in Argentina, um, you can quite often camp for free next door to petrol stations. And that's quite handy because, well, the petrol stations, well, you're going to need fuel anyway. And of course, it's a courtesy if you've camped next door to a petrol station, then you buy your fuel from that station before you leave in the morning. But these places quite often have um, toilets that you can use and quite often they'll have um, a hot water urn that you can use and uh, that's kind of handy saves you time first thing in the morning um, with getting yourself set up and on riding um, 
in North America, we found a lot of places to bush camp. People said it wasn't easy, but it really is. And you can do it without treading on people's toes. But we we did quite a lot of things like uh, in the more built-up areas where we were looking for somewhere to stay. We would um, go to a residential area, uh, normally on the edge of a town or a city, and we'd hunt around until we found somebody's house who'd got dirty windows or a dirty car in the in the front drive. And we'd go and knock on the door and we'd say, excuse me, um, in exchange for telling us somewhere that we can put our tent up for the night, uh, could we clean your car or could we clean your windows? And some of the friends we made as a result of doing that was fantastic. Oh, yeah. And we ended up with some cracking spots to camp. So camping, yeah, it's good. And, you know, little local camping sites and that sort of stuff. They're really good places to meet people, I think, especially if you're not afraid to go and say hello to people. Um, yeah, a motorcycle's a great icebreaker, isn't it? Yeah, it definitely is. Camping as much as you have from a motorcycle, you've obviously developed some habits that work for you or, or have some ideas or even items that, that work for you very well. Do you have um, some of those you could tell us about? Well, the first thing is a decent tent. Um, if if there's one of you, then um, a large two-person tent. If there are two of you, then definitely a three-person tent. It's going to be your home. It's got to be somewhere that you can sit up inside. It's got to have mosquito netting on both ends so that you can have a draft going through it when it's really hot. Um, I always go for at least a three-season tent because I want to be able to camp wherever I find myself and in whatever conditions it's well worth spending the money on a decent tent. Likewise, um, a good sleeping bag. Um, always either a three-season or a four-season sleeping bag. Um, you know, if it's cold, you're going to be really happy. And even in hot countries, there's altitude, and you can be really cold in the desert, for example. Uh, if it's hot, then don't, don't, don't use it. Um, we always carry cotton or silk sleeping bag liners with us, and they're, they're great when it's really hot. A decent sleeping mat, that's also very, very good. If you're going to aim for somewhere where you're going to have a lot of cold weather, then I'm a, a big advocate of downfilled sleeping bags. The difference that they make in temperature uh, retention for you is, is quite phenomenal because, of course, you lose most of the heat in your body when you're camping through your sleeping mat and into the ground. Um, if you haven't got a, a down sleeping mat, then, um, yeah, well, just go to the local supermarket and get some cardboard boxes and stick those underneath you. That uh, It makes a phenomenal difference. I think one of the other things is um, having a petrol stove. You've inevitably got fuel with you, so there's nothing worse than having to spend ages trawling around trying to find gas cylinders when you've got petrol So and the bulk of carrying gas. Why do it when you can carry uh, when you've got your, your petrol with you all of the time. I think if you can if you can sleep well and you can eat well, then you're going to travel in, in the healthiest and best frame of mind. Uh, we always make sure that we set off the day with a hot drink inside us and a meal inside us. Uh, by meal, I mean a bowl of muesli, for example. I know some people just get up and, and travel, but... I like to be ready for the unexpected. And if we've got a hot drink inside us and um, uh, some food inside of us, then basically we can keep going through just about whatever the road um, throws at us until we find somewhere comfortable that we want to have lunch. Birgit and I always use um, a stainless steel thermos flask and it's got a, a litre of, of water in it. 
And uh, one of the things we do in the evening is we'll boil a load of water and we'll fill the thermos flask with that. And then first thing in the morning, we'll be making a cup of tea or a cup of coffee as we're getting ourselves packed up. And while we're getting packed up, then the billy's on the boil for filling that thermos. And so uh, when we're traveling through the morning, we've got hot water ready for the next cup of coffee. And uh, yeah, it's I like the freedom that that can give you. And um, yeah, um, yeah, I think that's probably um, the best tips. I got uh, two more questions for you, and one of them I think is you're probably going to have an answer immediately because it's probably a question you get asked about over and over and over. And I even hesitate sometimes to get too much into this because I think it's something that uh, is concentrated on a little too much. But it's about the motorcycle and modifications. Now, I know you chose an R80GS, and you already said that the, you chose it because it was recommended to you, and you're, you're happy with the choice, and you do believe that people should take the bike that they're comfortable with. But do you have some um, recommendations on modifications that you made to your bike that actually worked and you felt were needed and that you would recommend to other people regardless of make or model? The first thing that I did was I stuck a 43 litre fuel tank on the bike. The guy sold it to me. Um, I'd, I'd seen them in the showroom and remember that you know I didn't have any motorcycle friends and it just seemed to be a very logical thing to do to carry a significant amount of fuel capacity and I had read in a magazine that carry as much weight as you can between the two wheels on your bike and preferably down as low as you can so that uh, your sense of gravity is kept low and I'd seen these petrol tanks and I thought yeah actually they look as if they bring the fuel down really low and definitely between the two wheels so this seems like a good idea. And the guy in the showroom said to me, so where are you going and why do you want this tank? And I told him and he said, right, OK, I've got just the thing for you. Hold on. So he went out in the back and a few moments later he came back with a lump hammer. So, you know, a mini sledgehammer. And he walked over to a petrol tank that they had on a, a bike which they'd got on sale. And as he walked towards it, he pulled his arm back with this hammer in it and he hammered. He gave this petrol tank a really good thump. And to my amazement, all that happened was the hammer bounced back. No cracks, no breaks, nothing. He said to me, it's a nylon petrol tank. You're going to fall off a lot where you're going and grinned. <laughs> um, he saw me coming, didn't he? Uh, but he said, you know, if you've got a plastic petrol tank and you fall off a lot on rocky surfaces and the chances are it will break, you'll never break a nylon tank. Would I buy a nylon petrol tank again or a large petrol tank? Actually, I have my reservations. I think the ideal for me is to have a 300-mile range. If I've got that 300-mile range, then I reckon that I can go most places except for the most remote places in deserts, and I can go from one place to the next and find enough fuel to keep going. Less than that, and I'm going to be nail-biting a little bit. Of course, you can always top up by buying um, cheap local jerry cans for the, the longer stretches and strapping those onto your bike and using them when you need them, and then just give them away afterwards so that you're keeping your, your, your weight down. Um, that petrol tank cost me a lot of money. It is an old friend. Would I do it again now? Actually, the money that it cost me in comparison to some plastic jerry cans temporarily strapped on, I could have more than, I could probably have ridden the length of two continents with the amount of money it cost wow. me. So would I do it again? Perhaps not. Having said that, it was a great place to have all of that petrol hanging. And for peace of mind, it was fabulous. Um, having put all that weight on the front end of the bike, I put progressive fork springs in. 
it seemed to me to be logical that I was going to hit potholes and having that extra weight up front of the bike, the bike wasn't designed or the suspension on the bike wasn't designed to deal with that extra weight. So progressive fork springs. And I think if I was preparing a bike now, regardless if I was carrying additional weight there, I would definitely do that. You do hit potholes and that extra strength with your fork springs, uh, I'm convinced, makes a massive difference. I've come across people who haven't done it and they've cracked mainframes, they've damaged their forks, oh, all sorts of things. So these forks, progressive fork springs are fabulous. I put um, a bash plate uh, or two bash plates on the underside of the engine and the underside of the collector box. And they have just been absolutely fantastic as far as protecting the engine and um, the collector box and so on. Would I do that again? Yes, I would without doubt. And, and you can make those for yourself if you can't find something that fits your bike. Um, a luggage rack. Yeah, um, my luggage rack is made out of one centimeter boxed steel tube. I like the idea of keeping the weight on my bike as low as possible. And I see some frames that are just really, really well engineered. But the weight involved with them is massive. Um, the, the, my aluminium panniers, the, 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 these racks worked for me very, very well in Nepal. I got hit by a runaway horse and cart and the hub on the, the wheel from the runaway horse and cart hit my pannier. The pannier just received a large dent on the corner of it. The rack itself uh, broke. It snapped. It's steel. I can get that welded anywhere. Was there any damage to the subframe on the motorcycle or anything else on the bike? No, there wasn't. That sort of damage could have caused me an awful lot of problem. So having the lighter weight um, rack, but reinforced suitably in the corners and with bars across the back behind the wheel so that there was minimal flex, that's been such a good decision. The panniers themselves, I, I like aluminium panniers for the sort of traveling that I do. Um, they're multi-purpose. At the end of the day, I take them off the bike and they become my seat and my, my dining table. When I'm staying in cheap local hotels, then I take them off the bike and I lock them to the bed so they become my, my in-hotel room safe. Um, you know, so they're, they're really useful for a, a, a multiple number of reasons. What else did I do? Oh, I put hand guards on the handlebars. They're a really good idea. I've had stones thrown up at me by trucks that have been in front and had the bruises on my chest to tell the story from that. Uh, a friend of mine had a stone thrown up by a truck and it hit his hand. It broke all of his fingers. Um, the hand guards have absolutely without doubt protected me from that. I've also put mesh on the front of my headlight. What a, what a pain in the backside if a stone gets thrown up and smashes your headlight. You're just a, a target for any unscrupulous police if that happens. And of course, although I don't ride at night time unless I absolutely have to, um, it's nice to know that you can do it and do it safely if you are forced into that position. One of my favorite bits of kit is a sheepskin saddle cover. It's... Um, it's 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 taken before it's been processed, so it's still full of lanolin. The sheepskins that you get, um, which are made for going in bedrooms and things like that, they have the lanolin taken out of them because it's a fairly greasy natural um, oil. And um, but once it's taken out, the sheepskins just soak up the water. If the lanolin's still in it, then they repel the water, so you don't have the problem with that. I like the sheepskin because it works as a, a multiple-purpose tool. 
when it's hot, it's much cooler to sit on than vinyl or leather. It's because after a little while, sheepskin goes sort of knobbly. It's almost like sitting on something that's massaging your backside all of the time, which can really help to stop bum ache. Um, when it's cold, it's a lot warmer to sit on than leather or vinyl. So you and well, yeah, you lose a lot of heat through your backside um, on a long journey. When it's really, really cold, then I used to stick it up the front of my bike jacket, and so I'd got yet another buffer against the, 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 the you know, the slipstream. Mm. Um, what else did I do? Oh, I put a mud guard on, um, a Jawa mud guard on the on the front mud, uh, mud mud flat because I like the idea of keeping as much crud as possible off my engine. Um, it was a nice souvenir. Picked that up in Egypt. Um, my bike's made up of all sorts of different bits of of different types of bikes and Land Rovers and Toyotas and all sorts. <laughs> so the panniers, the the hand guards, the headlight mesh, the sheepskin saddle cover, and the mud guards—that's all stuff you would do again, right? Yes, I would yeah. do. Yeah, very much so. And I would do the the guards underneath the the engine and the gearbox. Yep. Um, definitely do those. And I would do the the frame um, as lightweight again. And uh, one of the things that I really shouldn't forget is um, the rear suspension. Of course, if you're carrying um, your panniers and your roll bag and all of that sort of stuff on the back of the bike, then uh, the standard suspension that most bikes come with just just aren't strong enough to deal with it. Um, I was very lucky in that I just thought about that when I was at the planning stage and um, it seemed to be a good idea and I put a WP shock on my bike and the thing was absolutely brilliant. I would have been quite stuffed without it. And you are carrying your home on the back of your bike and you're going to be taking it into potentially gnarly places. So yeah, rear suspension, beef it up, well worth doing. It seems to be a common theme that many people say that. Uh, matter of fact, some people say it's absolutely mandatory that you upgrade that um, that rear suspension, that the stock ones will fail. You were lucky enough to upgrade it ahead of time. You didn't have your, your stock one fail on you. Is that the way it worked for you? No, absolutely right. Um, it was one of the things that I did get right when I was getting ready to go. And uh, the thing lasted me really well indeed. I've replaced it now, but I didn't replace it until I'd done 200,000 miles on it. And, well, um, probably 60% of that, maybe more, was um, on gravel or potholed roads and so on. So it uh, it did me really well. And, of course, you know, having your suspension, your rear suspension um, that good means that you're cutting out the chance of other things on the bike going wrong. If you're absorbing an awful lot of impact, then you're cutting down on the chances of um, subframe problems, of shaft problems, of gearbox problems. It's, it's, yeah, it's that important. When you installed it, did you notice a, a real big difference in ride over the stock one? I did. Um, it, but I had it set fairly hard anyway to deal with the weight that I was going to carry. So taking all of the luggage off the bike, uh, it felt um, it felt very firm. But um, even with the luggage on, it's, it was still a lot firmer than um, the stock would have been. And I kind of like having that harder ride. I feel more in control of the bike than when I've got it set soft and the bike's wallowing around. Um, yeah, that, that control when you're dealing with that weight and those road conditions is, is absolutely vital for me. Anything else? 
that's that's pretty much all I've I've ever done to the bike while I've been traveling. I mean, Sorry, everything you said here, you said you'll do again. Is there anything that you did that you, except for the fuel tank, the fuel tank was the only thing you left out. Is there anything else that you did that you just thought was just a, you know, you wouldn't wouldn't bother with it again? I mean, I hate to say it's a waste, but just something you wouldn't choose to do again. Yeah, I put a top box on the bike and I wouldn't do that again. Um, I, I never needed it. It was cumbersome. And I found that I could pack more into a soft, um, strong, waterproof bag than I could into the top box. The only time I missed having the top box was was that it was a nice place to put a crash helmet. But I soon got around that. I used to hang it on top of my um, handlebars, but um, just have a, a cable with a padlock and lock it through the handlebars. And nobody ever vandalized it. Nobody ever tried to take it. So I, I just never found um, a good use for a top box. And that really was just about the only thing that I, I, I put on the bike that I wouldn't have done. I, I mean, other than far too much stuff. Ah, oh, the salesman saw me coming and they could see that I was a novice motorcyclist. <laughs> so I, I, I bought things to help me through just about every eventuality. And for a long time in Africa, for example, while I still had all the spare parts, the, the word got around, listen, if you've got a BMW R80 or an R100, find Sam. If you've got a problem, he's probably carrying the spare parts. I gave away, I don't know, 60% of the spare parts that I'm carrying. And, you know, I've still got, all these years later, some of the spare parts that I set off with. Yeah, that's what Grant from Horizons Unlimited was saying, that nowadays, you know, with um, stuff being able to be shipped just anywhere in the world, yep. we were talking about electronic bikes, you know, the modern bike, and, and can it leave you stranded? He's saying you can get stuff almost anywhere now. You know, you yep. just, you're a week away from getting something shipped to you, so why bother taking it with you? I remember that story when Birgit and I are riding together and we've made it as far as Malawi and all of a sudden uh, Birgit's back wheel locks, the bearing on, on the spindle actually locks into place but we're not in a place where we can stop. Um, we're on a busy road, and but the, the the town that we were heading for was about 20 kilometres away so she carried on and by the time we got to this town, uh, the the, the turning bearing, because everything had just welded together, had been grinding away the inside of the housing on the wheel. So the spare bearing that she was carrying, yeah, it was all well and good, but it, it would no longer fit. We would have to sleeve it. And did we want to do that? And would we be able to find somebody who was skilled enough to be able to sleeve it sufficiently well so that she could ride on feeling comfortable and not worrying about it all of the time well we decided not so we spent a week sitting on the edge of lake malawi eating fish that had just been pulled out of the river uh, bargaining with the locals in the markets and meeting other travelers and all of these sorts of things while we were waiting for a new wheel to be dhl'd out and the wheel was delivered to the local office so we had um what a 15 minute um walk to go and pick up this new wheel when when it arrived perfect it's um when something goes wrong yeah get things sent out but i'm a great advocate in in people carrying things like the basic electronics um, you know, on, on my bike, there's a there's what people commonly call a, a black box, and if that goes well, you know, you can be stuffed. Um, would I carry a spare? Yes, I would, because it's tiny. It slots in very nicely, and a, a quick repair, you know, change over, and and you're up and running. It's also such an important part that if that 
hasn't solved the problem, then it guides you to other places to look. But also we, we carry um, oil filters and um, fuel filters and spare cables. The spare cables we always strap into place so that if one pops while you're on the road, it's just a case of slot it into place and no opening up panniers and things like that and spreading your belongings over the side of the road when you're next door to a really busy market um, with lots of very enthusiastic people who all want to help, but actually they're just getting in the way. Um, so it's basic parts like that we would definitely carry with us. But everything else, no. Sit and learn more about where you've ended up breaking down. There's, um, it's just an opportunity for something new and fun to happen. It's an awful lot easier now because of international careers. You mentioned before about, you know, people who have come back and they've just, uh, you know, they describe having one problem after another and they sort of throw in the towel at that. It almost comes down to attitude, doesn't it? It's, it depends on what you look at a problem as. And obviously, when you have a problem, you look at it as an opportunity to, to learn something else. And clearly, you know, another person may not see it the same way. I think that's right. And, and that's one of the beauties of overlanding and overlanders. Everybody's different. We all take things in our own way, using our own experiences of life to date, our own riding abilities, um, camping abilities, or whatever else it may be. And that's, uh, you know, somebody said to me once, I don't know why you're bothering going overlanding. It's all been done before. There are no adventures left out there. And I think, God, what tosh is that? Um, Every journey that anybody makes is going to be a brand new journey. It's never going to have been done before. And what I mean by that is each person who sets out on their journey will never have the same weather situation, for example, as the person who's been down that road in the past. They're probably not going to meet the same people. They won't break down in the same situations. They won't have the same border guards, etc., etc., etc. The political situation may have changed. And so it goes on. So everybody's journey is something completely unique and completely fresh. Uh, that's the beauty of overlanding. I think that a person that heads out on a journey, any sort of journey that we do, you don't do it, hopefully, to prove anything to anyone else. You're doing it for your own experience because the argument could be made, why take a ride at, um, at the fair when other people have already had that ride? Well, the ride is for me. I want the experience for myself. Mm-hmm. No, I completely agree with you. What about tires, Sam? What, did you run one set of tires, like one type of tire, or you know, did you just get whatever was available? Um, I set off with the tyres that were on the bike at the time. They looked as if they'd do a reasonable job. And over the course of the first four years, I tried every single different tyre that I came across that looked as if it was um, up for it because, you know, I was so inexperienced. I didn't know what was a good tyre and what was a bad one. I always um, asked other people about the tyres that they were using and what they liked and what they didn't like. And, um, of course, everybody's really happy to share the knowledge. Um, the last four years of the trip, I ended up riding with Avon Gripsters. They just happened to fit my particular model of bike, and I really liked the, the tread pattern that they'd got. They worked really, really well um, in light mud and gravel conditions. And on asphalt, they were super on, on gravel, very, very nice tires to ride on. And I was getting huge mileage out of these things. I was so surprised. They were by far the greatest mileage that I had. Um, so I've, I've just stuck with them ever since. They've, they've been good. But there are some really good tires out there now. Um, I hear quite a lot of people are using uh, Mifos and Continental tires are just bringing out a, a new tire, which has got much harder rubber 
in the center of the tire. It's a, it's a more um, enduro type tire um, pattern with softer on the side. And that seems to me to be a really good combination for overlanding because you want something that's going to stick it and be tough it enough in the middle. But when you're whizzing around those corners, you want to have the grip. Uh, racing tires are made in the same way, but um, overlanding tires haven't specifically been that made that way. But um, yeah, it's uh, it's it's di it would be difficult for me to choose what to go with as a, as an alternative. These the, the grips have been great. Sam, is there anything you wanted to mention or talk about um, before we go? I'd I'd love to just plug and and say to people, look, if you've got the opportunity to go out and travel, then really just do it. Um, it's it's a it's a, a magnificent thing to be able to do in your life, and yet the risk is that you may get corrupted and never want to go back to real life again, or you may get back and just think that was fantastic. Right, what next? And whatever, it's it's a it's a fabulous thing to do. And do you know, I think if more people went overlanding, and I know this isn't possible, but I think we'd end up with um, less wars than we end up with because we'd all be out there and we'd all be learning that actually because somebody's skin color is, is different and their religion is different doesn't make them a bad person. Actually, politics can be bad in some countries, but the people are brilliant. Um, so I'd like to push that. I should also, of course, and I'd be completely remiss with what I do for a living um, if I didn't mention um, my four books again um, and that they're available for download as e-books and that um, my first two books, Into Africa and Under Asian Skies, are out in audiobook format now. And that's actually been quite an interesting process because I, I wondered for a long time why adventure motorcycle travel books weren't coming out in audiobook format. And I watched the market and I watched the market and nothing was happening. I couldn't afford to do them because the studio time is expensive. And most audiobooks are actually read by professionals, not by the person who's written the book. And when I started looking into it, into the finances, I started to realize that actually logistically and cost-wise, there's no way I could do it. And I didn't want my books to be abridged. And many audio books that you see in CD formats, they've been abridged so that they actually sit onto CDs. And I think, well, if you're going to tell a story, then you might as well tell the whole thing. But now people are more and more used to downloading music and that sort of thing. Then all of a sudden it opened up a whole new world. And I was particularly encouraged to do it by several different sets of people. People um, that I met who said, gosh, you know, Sam, your books sound really interesting, but I never get the time to read. My life is so full. And other people who said to me, um, I would love to listen to an audio book about adventure motorcycling. I do a long commute every day. Um, that would be brilliant to be able to listen to that. And I met one guy who was a truck driver and he said, yeah, I listen to audio books all of the time while I'm working. And But the, the group that made me do it um, over and above anybody else was because I bounce around and do quite a lot of book signings and presentations and stuff like that. Um, I kept on meeting motorcyclists who were dyslexic. And the conversations that I got into um, with these guys, they were telling me that one of the reasons that they were motorcycling or they got into it in the first place was because it was something that they could do where they could be the same as everybody else. They weren't disadvantaged. They could just roughly work out from road signs because of the length of the words that that was probably the direction that they were going in. But other than that, why did they need to read? They were completely free because of that. And I had an email from one of these guys after we'd been talking, and he said, Sam, I would really like to read one of your books. I've never read a book in my whole life. Put them on audio books, mate. And I thought, yeah, okay. 
let's have a go. Let's just see what happens. And I'm, I'm just blown away by the response to them. It's been really nice. And, you know, one of the things that's made me laugh about them, um, with a bit of a smile, is um, I had an email from a lady who says, I listen to your books when I'm doing the housework. It's great. I'm hoovering, but I'm in Africa. Fantastic. And I just laughed so much when she said that to me. <laughs> Yeah, I love audiobooks. I've been a big fan of them for many years, and I was very excited to see your books get on there. Where can listeners find out more information about uh, what you do? Um, I have a website going, and um, it's www.sam and then dash or hyphen uh, manicom, which is m a n r a c o m for Mike dot com. And there's all sorts of stuff on that um, website, including excerpts from the books. There are excerpts from the audio books there, um, links to where people can buy the books from. My books are available um, direct from me um, or from Amazon. And um, I'm very grateful when people don't buy direct from Amazon but go to the Adventure Motorcycle Travel Books link from Amazon. Um, on Amazon because then they are buying them basically direct from me, which is which is brilliant. Um, but they're sorry. Available. Can you explain that a little better? Yeah, um, Amazon. If you go to if you put Sam Manicum into a Google search and Amazon, then you'll come across um, uh, the Amazon page first. But it also says available from, and you might have ten different um, retailers for the books, and one of them is is me, and I supply the books to Amazon, and then they sell them on from there. For uh, North America, that's not um, such a such an easy thing to do because uh, Amazon, for some reason, still haven't got their act together as far as getting the books um, regularly in stock. But there is somewhere that um, people can get worldwide free delivery of my books, and that's from an organisation called the Book Depository. And uh, yeah, really, they're free worldwide delivery. So um, if they can't get them direct from Amazon in book form, then they can get them direct from the, the book depository. But the the books are all email from um, the book depository. Into Africa is available as an enhanced ebook from um, iTunes, and that one's got uh, some little bits of video footage, some uh, some and uh, some colour photos and things like that. But um, that's oh, the only nice. book that we've put into um, iTunes. The rest are all on Kindle. Well, that's really good. I'm, uh, I'm excited to listen to the audio. And, and it's you reading too, by the way. I forgot to mention that. that You didn't get an actor to read this. Uh, what was the choice there? Well, um, it's really funny. You know, I was hunting around for a studio to do this. And the studios that I talked to were very dubious and really not interested. Um, and now I know more about the whole process. I can understand why. But I met a guy who is a motorcyclist interested in overlanding and um, owns a recording studio and we got to talking and um, he explained to me why there are professionals normally who read audiobooks it's not a simple thing to do and it's not just a case of going and sitting in a reading and, and just getting on with it. There's a lot more to it than that. So he was very dubious about me doing it. But he said, look, OK, let's sit down and we'll record the first chapter. And if I think that it's any good then, well, let's think again. So we got to the end of the first chapter and he was sort of, hmm, actually, yeah, this isn't too bad. Tell you what, why don't we put some excerpts up on YouTube of, of what we've done? You know, the YouTube doesn't allow you to post the whole thing. And we'll see what people think about it. And if the feedback's good, then let's get you back in the studio and we'll start working on the rest. Well, fortunately, the feedback was, was really good. And um, so I went back into the studio and the first thing that, that they said, 
said to me at Kite Studio was, look, if as we're going through this process, we don't think you're cutting the mustard, then we're just going to call a halt to it. You've got to, you know, you've got to pay for the time and all of the rest of it. But normally professional people read this. And so it was all felt like a huge gamble. It was yet another adventure, wasn't it? Stepping out into the unknown and wondering what was going to happen next. But With your wallet this time. Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, but, you know, we had some fun. And the guys in the studio were absolutely superb. And they coached me and encouraged and told me when I was stuffing up and gave me the opportunity to put things right and, and so on. And by the time we got to the end of recording it, they said, yeah, OK, we're going to let you release this. Oh, what a magic moment that was. <laughs> I had several beers in the bar that night. Uh, and, and out it went. But, you know, it also went out with me thinking, yep, this could be another stupid thing that Sam's done in his life. <laughs> but um, fortunately, people seemed to like it. And I was getting emails from people saying, can we have the next one, please? So um, I approached the studio again and they said, oh, yeah, go on then. All right. And so uh, we went into the studio and off we went again. It's actually a very interesting process reading an audio book because, you know, every day you go into the studio, from the moment you start reading to the end of that day's reading, you have to keep the same pace, the same, the right intonation in the different sections. Uh, you can't go overkill and be completely over, you know, flamboyant in some bits and, and so on. It's... And I actually really enjoyed it. And I felt that actually I could be me as I was reading the book. And I guess maybe that's kind of why they work. But the hardest thing is coming back in again the next morning and starting all over again with the same tone of voice and all of those sorts of things and doing it day after day after day. It's, um, it's quite hard. And, you know, by the end of, of doing the recording, you're almost hoarse from all of the talking you're doing. And obviously you can tell that I spend a lot of time talking. But um, it's not my natural habitat, honest. <laughs> How much time did it take you to record the book? Um, well, including editing time, nearly two weeks. That's a lot. It, it is a lot. Um, but it's well worth it. And, you know, I'm a great believer in if you're going to do something, do it well. There's no point in doing it otherwise. And my books, for example, when they first came out, they haven't changed price since the first one came out in 2005. Um, and I set them then at £13.95. And people were saying, cool, that's expensive. And I was, I, I said, but yeah, you know, I could have gone to Singapore or China or somewhere like that. And I could have had the books printed for, for buttons over there. But I want to have the best quality paper that I can. And I want to have the books printed in the UK because to begin with, of course, that's where mostly they're going to sell. I'd rather keep the books and keep the employment in the UK. And I hope that doesn't sound terribly pompous, but um, it just felt like a really good thing to do. And in keeping with the ethos of the books and doing it well. Um, so, uh, but the, pri the prices have stayed the same as each subsequent book has come out and still the same now. I don't see any point in, in raising them. The ethos is there, and um, thankfully they seem to be working. Least please, nobody's throwing um, rotten tomatoes at me. Sam, thank you for being on the show and sharing your adventures with us. Thanks, Jim. Cheers. I've been speaking with Sam Manicom, author, motorcyclist, adventurer, travel writer, 
Sam has four books out now about his travels around the world on his R80GS. And two of those books are now available as audiobooks. You can find out more about Sam at sam-manicom.com. And we'll put links to his website in the show notes. So make sure you go there and check it out. You're going to find his website very interesting. Now, before we wrap it up, I want to play an excerpt from uh, one of Sam's audiobooks. This is from Into Africa, and it's chapter two. And it's certainly going to draw you in, that's for sure. After you listen to it, go to his website and buy the book. Chapter two. The point of no return. What he didn't know would make a library anyone would be proud of. Before leaving the Channel Islands, the thought of almost killing someone and the possibility of being raped hadn't even entered my mind. Perhaps I'd been incredibly naive or, quite simply, ignorant of what I was facing when I made the decision to learn to ride a bike, chuck in my job and ride the length of Africa. The romance of the idea the preparation, winding up my job and the challenge of the time schedule I'd set myself had been both the spur and enough to occupy my mind. I've got to be honest, though, there was a certain element of not wanting to think too hard about what might go wrong. If I'd thought about the risks too much, then I'd almost certainly have let the dream remain just that. The open roads of Italy allowed much more time for thinking, but thankfully my imagination didn't stretch as far as perhaps it ought. Even so, the further south I headed, and the closer I got to the Greek port of Piraeus, my personal point of no return, the more I began to worry that I'd made a big mistake about the whole idea. Thoughts edged nastily into my mind whenever they could, and I was getting scared. There were so many things that could go wrong. Would I be quick-thinking enough when faced with dodgy officials? Would I get ripped off? Would I have enough money? Would I be able to get my visas? What would it be like in the politically sensitive sections? Were my maps any good? How would I cope if I fell off the bike in a remote place and broke something? My imagination conjured up all sorts of visions of me in pain, alone and helpless. I also wondered how my family would feel if I'd snuffed it out there. I just hoped that they would be happy that I'd been doing something that I really wanted to do. But now I was on the way, I wasn't so sure that I wanted to do it anymore. Along with my thoughts, I was battling with the bike I'd bought. The BMW R80GS was far too big for me, and because I'd tried to plan for everything, it was overloaded to a ridiculous extent. The selling point of the beast had been that the famous BMW boxer engine was supposed to be bulletproof, and simple enough for idiots to deal with. That had sounded about right, but I felt as if I was riding a drunken pig. When I wasn't scaring myself with thoughts, or by doing something stupid with the bike, I was revelling in the sensation of being free from the normality of everyday life. Being a tourist again was fun, and Europe was a good winding-down stage from the deadlines and the need to try and get everything done yesterday. I had an instinct that told me I'd cope with whatever Africa was going to throw at me, if I calmed down and became more patient. My instinct said that I'd have to take on board the chameleon factor, take it slow and adapt to every situation I found myself in. When I wasn't thinking dire thoughts, it was almost as if I could persuade myself that I was just on holiday. So far, I hadn't done anything really daft, and with each mile there was always plenty to keep me busy. Pompeii was firmly on the list of places I wanted to visit on the way south, or so I thought until just before I had my first crash. I'd managed to get lost again, and found myself in the crowded streets of a strange town. I didn't mind getting lost, because some of my best adventures have begun in a place I wasn't supposed to be. 
People in fancy dress, carnival floats and excited running children surrounded me. And though it was all rather manic, I had the feeling that I'd ended up getting lost in the right place. Fireworks popped, adding to the people noise and filling the air with acrid smell of gunpowder. Before me, two cars had also got caught in the excitement, and I let them make a path through the crowds for me. Then, the red Fiat indicated to go right through a gap, and as he turned, I sped up a bit, not wanting to lose the other car. The next thing I knew was that the Fiat driver had changed his mind and was heading almost sideways towards me. Life turned into slow motion, and the inevitable happened. With a loud crunch, the car collected a deep, pannier-shaped dent. The crush of the crowd stopped me falling over, but within seconds I was faced by four arm-waving, decidedly angry men. The crowd stepped back a pace, and everyone turned to watch the new entertainment. There was no escape. I'd learned enough about arm-waving and shoulder-shrugging to plead ignorance, but it wasn't working. The situation turned really ugly, and I thought I was about to get thumped. Then from above, a stern voice rapped out at the men, and several hundred eyes swivelled upwards in unison. There on a wrought-iron balcony stood an old man dressed as if he'd just stepped off the set of a gangster movie. Clad in a double-breasted, pinstripe suit, he'd seen the whole thing, and after a few moments of firm talking, the crowd parted, and I climbed onto the bike, not quite able to believe that I was free. I had a moment of electric start bliss, and we left before the spell was broken. Pompeii could wait for another trip. My narrow escape changed my mood, and I decided to chase across to the east coast port of Brindisi. If quick enough, I'd make it in time for the evening ferry across the Adriatic to Greece. This far south, the late afternoon was gently warm, and arriving in plenty of time allowed me to settle down under the palm trees of the harbour square to watch life go by. With the bike ticking as it cooled, my mind buzzed with the thought that, except for the last few metres, I now had my first two countries under my wheels. There was still lots to do, though, and the man in the booking office gave me a warning that took away some of my buzz. You must not leave your bike unattended, he said. There are many bad people in Brindisi. As a backpacker, I'd heard these sorts of dire warnings many times before, but usually they'd been about people in the next town or region. This clerk had to know his own doorstep, though, so I had a problem. Before the ferry could leave at 8pm, he instructed me that I needed to confirm my ticket at 5pm, then go to the police, on to immigration and finally customs. All my locked boxes and panniers were just going to have to earn their keep. One way or the other, this was going to be a first time I would have to leave the bike unattended in a border situation, and as it wouldn't be the last, it was time to be philosophical. All would be OK, or it wouldn't, and I'd have to deal with it. Brindisi's ferry square filled up as the hours went by, and it turned out to be a great meeting place. Everyone had a story to tell. Some were told with long faces, and others with full-on exuberance. Jean and Betty, two Aussies and a camper van, had had hard times, and their tales served as a good warning. The camper had just been broken into, and their cameras and stereo were long gone. But robbery also happened to the experienced. Alan said, Yeah, they got me too. I was sitting on the train, minding my own business, and a couple of guys pulled a knife on me. All the cash he had left was the money he'd stashed in his shoes. Another lesson learned, and I thought about how I too could distribute my traveller's cheques and cash. Some of my stash was already inside the tube of the main frame on the bike. 
The rest I'd split between my money belt, my boots, a split in the shoulder pad of my bike jacket, and I tucked a little more into a plastic bag with my spare parts for the bike. But I kept the traveller's checks handy in case I was required to show that I wasn't skint. The dusty, rather beat-up port of Ignomitsa welcomed me the next day, but I only stayed long enough to stock up on fresh baked bread, feta cheese, huge olives and a bottle of Retzina wine. This stuff is reputedly flavoured with pine resin to get the decidedly unique taste, and the first glass I'd ever had of this stuff was quite revolting. The second glass hadn't tasted quite so bad, and by the third glass it was actually pretty good. Now though, I wanted a beach, and trundled along the coast looking down over little sandy coves. The road took me through the shade of olive groves and past blossom-laden almond trees. Rush hour was a couple of battered pickup trucks and a pair of donkeys. I found my camping site on the beach and pitched tent under Bougainvillea's purple blossoms. The sea was warm, and as I sat in the gentle breeze, I felt at peace with the world. This was what it was all about. The camping site I'd found was actually another of Europe's closed-for-the-winter sites. But Yorgos, the very amiable manager, greeted me with a wide grin and a Yasu Kalimera! Hello, good morning in Greek has a nice ring to it. He stood before me dressed in typical Greek working clothes. His scruffy boots were lacking more than a couple of layers of polish. He wore dark trousers that had dust patches on the knees and an old blue shirt whose collar had needed turning months before. He had to be a bachelor. His hands were rough and his chin hadn't seen a razor for several days. I wondered what sort of picture he was forming of me, as he, still grinning, stared back. Yorgos turned out to be a real character. I could use the campsite, but on one condition. I had to drink wine with him in the evening. Yorgos had lived in the States for eight years, and his English was excellent. Though it didn't help my Greek to improve, it helped considerably as the evening's wine began to flow. I really enjoyed the U.S., and it was a great experience, but I came back to see my family and I realised what I was missing, Yorgos said. He agreed that the States were in fact the land of opportunity, but said, The price is a crazy pace of life, and I don't always agree with how Americans think. Here I can still use all I learned in America, but still live the life of a Greek. His plans for the camping site, surrounded by ancient olive trees and shady bougainvillea, sounded perhaps a little too grand. But if anybody could succeed, I suspected that Yorgos could, if he didn't settle into the way of life too much. Back at my brand new tent, I'd had a visitor, and I learned another simple lesson the hard way. Yanni, the campsite cat, had smelt the last of my Italian salami and had decided that the walls of my home were not a problem. He kindly left me the salami wrapper and a series of seven-inch rips in the tent inner. The next day could easily have been very lazy, but the itch to keep moving was there. African rains were on my mind. If I was late, I'd cop it on some of the worst dirt roads. But at first, a good breakfast was needed to get rid of some of my hangover. Yorgos could really drink, and I, like a prat, had tried to keep up with him. Several cups of hot coffee would go down well, but I still hadn't managed to get my new cooker working properly. Half the time, all it wanted to do was gush clouds of thick, black, petrol-laden flumes, which, though warm, coated everything with soot. Even a simple cup of tea ended up flavoured with foul gasoline tang. 
So far, it seemed that the only thing it would be good for was if I got stuck in the desert and needed to send up a smoke signal to a passing aeroplane. Whilst loading the bike, I noticed a tiny oil leak from the front cover of the engine, but it was only tiny, so working on the if-it-ain't-broke-don't-fix-it theory, I carried on loading. The day's ride took me looping and curling along the coast. The bike hummed and I sang. Sadly for the villagers along the road, the house of the rising sun got stuck in my head that day. My search for an open campsite caused me problems once more, but yet again luck was with me. This time my Yorgos was called Thomas. With a cracked grin from above a grisly stubbled chin, Thomas told me that he owned a holiday village not far away. Though closed for the season, it was definitely open to a madman on his way to ride through Africa, so long as I didn't mind the cold showers. Over an inevitable bottle of wine that night, Thomas told me a little about himself. I guessed that he was probably in his early fifties. A short, stocky man, he looked tremendously fit and tough, rather like a dormant paratrooper. I suspect that he wasn't a good man to upset. His usual expression was off-puttingly stern, and an artist friend of his had captured it perfectly in a pencil drawing. He did have a wonderful smile, though, and when he got enthused about things, it would transform his face. We'd started our conversation in Greek, but soon switched to English, and his was surprisingly accented with an enthusiastic Scottish burr. I managed to get into the UK to study, but I couldn't speak English, he said. Fairly quickly, he sorted out a job up in Scotland on one of the new dams that were being built. It was a good job, Thomas told me. There was plenty to paint, and I didn't need English for that. But I decided to teach myself anyway, and some of my first words were learnt by finding out what the sentences on the toilet walls meant. At a click of his amber worry beads, he could turn on a very fluent, very blue stream of sentences. That night, we sat up on the balcony of one of the holiday apartments. It looked down onto the small fishing village and out over the coast where the main road snaked its way along the dips and curves of the shoreline. In the still, deep blue of the night, the heavy trucks that were thundering along looked like dragons on a Chinese parade. Greek lorry drivers loved to decorate their trucks with all sorts of coloured lights, and the effect was quite spectacular. Thomas told me that every night the parade would go on for hour after hour. It was hypnotically similar to watching the flames of a campfire. He also told me that the effect was heightened that night because the morning would bring a general strike across Greece. The drivers were all rushing to beat the strike, he said. By not reading the papers, nor listening to the radio, this was news to me. Bad news at that. There will be no electricity, Thomas warned. That means no banks, no petrol, and even worse for you, the ports could close. Having discussed this weighty matter, Thomas, in true Greek style, advised, As there's nothing you can do, you shall have some more wine. Dawn came as Friday the 13th. I'd lost touch with the days and hadn't realised until Thomas pointed it out. What a good day for a strike. But there were upsides. The road to the ruins of the ancient city of Delphi were blissfully quiet. The early morning sun was exactly the same colour as the sea. There didn't even seem to be a horizon, no dividing line at all. The only break in the pure forget-me-not blue was the land. It seemed to float as if hanging unconnected to anything in a pool of blue space. This was an absolute first for me, and if I'd seen it on a painting, I probably would have made some sort of remark about the artist having lost touch with reality. But there, spread before me, was reality. With this one view, doing the trip by bike had suddenly made complete sense. The bike had allowed me to stop at the perfect point to take in the magical scene.
I couldn't have stopped a car on a narrow road. I'd have just had a detached glimpse through tinted windows of a bus, and a train wouldn't have taken me anywhere near it. Making its way inland, the Delphi Road lifted itself through a series of tortuous curves and bends. The only person I saw was an old man plodding peacefully along on a donkey. The old city sat quiet and majestic on an olive-green mountainside that was tinted with the pastel pink of blossoming almond trees. I'd had no idea that this was how I would find Delphi, but it seemed that I'd arrived at the perfect time to see the city at its best. The still early hour meant that the ruins were pretty much deserted. With the sunlight low and a little hazy over the mountains, it felt like I'd found another stroke of perfection. Perhaps Friday the 13th was going to turn out to be a lucky day on the trip. It wasn't hard to imagine what the city would be like in full summer swing. By the time I'd climbed the long curving stone terraces of the stadium, the sun had cleared away the haze and it changed from comfortably cool to hot. For the first time on the trip, my feet were baking in my bike boots and I wondered what they would be like to wear in the desert. The city moved from dozing in gentle rays to full-on activity in the day's heat. The first tourist coaches began to arrive and from my perch high up in the city I could see the thread and flow of the lines of people. I settled down to watch. Faint jumbles of accents lifted up towards me from overweight, red-faced but enthusiastic visitors. Admiring them for getting out to see some of the world, I sat and played mind games. For a while, it was fun to dress them all in robes, togas and ancient Greek uniforms. I wondered how much their movements differed from those of visitors to the city when it was in its glory. We humans are such funny creatures, predictable in so many ways, and really, people are just the same, whatever race or time they may be from. Things beautiful astound us, and expressions of awe are the same tone in any language. I rather liked the eerie sense that the ghosts were still there watching us, wandering their city, and I wondered what they were thinking about us all as we trod their familiar paths. For a moment up there on the terrace I felt lonely. The day was beautiful and it seemed wrong not to be sharing it with someone special. I tried hard not to let the feeling spoil the day. If there had been someone else with me, perhaps I wouldn't have had the time to recognise the beauty or feel the freedom to fantasise about the city, and these special moments might not have been there at all. It seemed unhealthy to be thinking these thoughts as I was on my own, and the situation was unlikely to change. The bonuses of solo travel were obvious to me once more, and Friday the 13th continued to be a good day. The real Friday the 13th started on Saturday the 14th. In the morning, the Peloponnese ferry left without me. When setting my watch by Yorgos's clock, there'd been nothing to warn me that it had been an hour out. After moments of irritation, I suddenly realised that in the grand scheme of things, missing the boat didn't matter a jot. Settling into Greek time wasn't hard to do, and down at the jetty there were plenty of people to watch. Baskets of fish were unloaded by raucous men who called to passers-by with written remarks. Tiny cups of thick syrupy coffee were sipped at cafe tables and just about every man I could see was smoking grim-smelling cigarettes. White walls, terracotta roofs, the deep blue of the sea and the olive tree slopes made the backdrop. Fishing boats painted blue, black and white bobbed against the jetty and seagulls circled overhead, as seagulls are supposed to do. Time almost stood still for a moment and it felt absolutely right that it should, and even more right that I should too. 
The ferry eased towards the ramp, and with a last-minute swirling flare and its landing craft bows dropped open with a thud. There was a pause before well-filled cars, strike-breaking trucks and noisy smoking mopeds streamed up onto the jetty. Old men dressed in black and blue wheeled off ancient battered bicycles with well-loaded wicker baskets. Dumpy women, shrouded from head to toe in black shoes, black stockings, black dresses and black headscarves, walked tiredly off the ferry, as if they were carrying the woes of the world on their shoulders. Almost shadow-like, they stubbornly heaved at cantankerous donkeys that were pulling carts loaded with vegetables. A couple of brightly clad tourists on chunky, gleaming, neatly loaded bicycles eased through the rush. They passed me with a wave. Then the tide of people turned, and the new set of lookalikes rushed up the ramp for the twenty-minute return journey. The captain, whose rich, curling moustache made him look like one of the heroes from a Sinbad movie, casually guided the boat across the straits with practised ease of a bus driver. Somehow I'd ended up second in line to be off the boat, but in front of me was a flashy white Mercedes whose driver seemed to have come from a different world from the rest of us. As soon as the ferry hit the other side, he switched on his engine and revved the Mercedes to a roar whilst bumping irritably at the exit ramp. With the ramp down, he sped off, leaving a shower of sparks from his exhaust. The road from Patras to Corinth split in two directions. To the left, a motorway over which hung a huge toll sign, and to the right, the old road and no toll. The old road won the toss. More interesting, but also rather sad. Village after village lined its sides, linking and blending together in a never-ending dusty sprawl of unattractive dying structures. Each one seemed to have more than its fair share of missing tiles, cracked walls and peeling paint. I guessed that the motorway had sucked away passing trade and that this had been like the loss of water to a struggling plant. I splashed out on a coke at a tumble-down roadside stall, paying my toll for the old road. A glance down at my boots snapped me out of these musings. My right boot was wet and glistening with oil. A greasy black smear of oil had spread its way from the front of the engine, over the casing and onto my boot. Brilliant. Haven't even left Europe yet, I grumbled to myself. Of course, I'd no idea what the problem might be, but decided that it looked worse than it really was, so rode on to Corinth. I could check it out when I stopped for the night. And, I reasoned, if it looked to be a problem, then in Europe at least I could get help with it. I'd rather have my warning signs now, but then again, maybe the Greek garages were on strike too. I was really happy that I carried so much fuel, 53 litres in total, though I'd never dreamt of being glad of it so soon. The ferry had worked, but the fuel pumps for the bus day had not. Ancient Corinth bought me a new character. There on Old Corinth Town Square, which also doubled as a free campsite, was a dilapidated camper van. John, the van's owner, had a travelling style that was winging a prayer, and he was having a ball. When I first saw him, I thought, fat and fit. He could also talk the hind leg off a donkey. I feared for the local steeds. I soon picked up that he was a fatalist, a jiu-jitsu instructor, a believer in the labour movement, had sold everything at home to travel, was on his way to India, and had almost no money left, and was trying to get a job locally to teach English. Phew. He also had a washing machine in his van and offered, Would you like to use it? 
Half of this was said while standing on a carved stone plinth pretending to be an ancient Greek statue, with one leg missing. I took him up on the offer, and also the chance to sleep in his van. No tent to battle with sounded like a pleasant change, but I was quick to sleep in the tent the next night. Not only did John toss and turn in his sleep, which made the whole van rock, furiously, but he snored as hard and fast as he talked. My socks came up a treat, though. Mad John was on an even steeper learning curve than I was. With total confidence in his ability to sort things out as they happened, he set off from home, having done very little research. His dream was still India. Did I know what paperwork he'd need for the trip? Passport? OK. Carne? What on earth is that? he asked. A carne is a temporary import guarantee for your van when you cross into each country outside Europe. Costs a bit, though, I told him. John was undaunted. As a citizen of the world, he was sure they could go anywhere and could do anything. After Rome, I had no fear of Athens or Piraeus, but my confidence was premature. The road signs were awful, the traffic the densest in Europe, and by the time I reached the docks it was dark. If anything went wrong now, I'd miss the boat to Egypt, and the next one would be days away. I plunged into my first taste of the world of international customs and immigration, and felt under pressure for the first time in days. Brindisi's set-up had been child's play, but this time I was leaving a continent. The next four hours were spent with lots of contradicting directions, no signposts and grumpy port officials, most of whom didn't seem to know what they were doing. Well, I hate to cut it off there and leave you hanging. Nah, I really don't. I want to send you over to Sam's website so you can go buy the books. You won't go wrong. Great entertainment. This is Adventure Rider Radio, and we've wrapped up another session. I'm Jim Martin, your host. Hey, you want to do Adventure Rider Radio a favor? Head over to iTunes. Give us a rating at iTunes. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Go to our website. Fill out a feedback form. Drop a donation. Just some sort of feedback. Drop by the Facebook page. we got a Facebook page, which is pretty cool. Of course, I'm biased, yes. Drop a note on Twitter. Any sort of feedback is great. Thanks very much for listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Get out there and ride. Ride safe. Hello there, listeners. My name is Austin Vince. I'm speaking to you from London, England. And this is Adventure Rider Radio. Oh, and that was Austin Vince. Just before I go, I want to remind you, if you're in the UK, check out the Adventure Travel Film Festival for 2014. It's in Dorset. It's August 15 to 17. And you can uh, go to the website, adventuretravelfilmfestival.com. I've never been to it, but it looks really cool. Now, remember, you can get Sam's books, the ebook version at Kindle, or you can get the paper version with free delivery from the book depository. Free delivery worldwide. That's incredible. Check it out. You can check the links in the show notes, or you can go right over to Sam's website, sammanicom.com. <laughs>